Welcome to another episode of Anecdotal Evidence, the podcast sponsored by the American Institute of Dental Public Health. I'm your host, Annalise Cothran, and today we're talking about how to bridge the gap between medical and dental integration. Almost 20 years ago, the Surgeon General's office under Dr. David Satcher published its first report on oral health. That report provided us with the phrase, putting the mouth back into the body, meaning the oral systemic connection is real and oral health is an important piece of primary care. Two years ago, Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy named a lack of medical dental integration as a barrier to optimal oral health. So how can we stop working in parallel and start integrating oral health into primary care delivery? Well, today we explore how to shift into value-based care, ways to leverage and expand our health workforce, and the need for effective health information exchanges. I'm joined by Dr. Hugh Silk, a family physician at the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. His long-standing oral health advocacy efforts led him to co-create the Center for Integration of Primary Care and Oral Health, where he is the site principal investigator. Dr. Silk is also founder and chair of the Massachusetts Medical Society's Committee on Oral Health. I'm also joined by Dr. Steve Geierman, Senior Manager for Access, Community Oral Health Infrastructure, and Capacity with the American Dental Association. Dr. Geierman is a former U.S. Public Health Service commissioned officer who has worked within public health settings for the majority of his career, seeking to provide greater access to oral health care for the underserved. In addition to his work at the ADA, Dr. Geierman serves on the board of directors for the National Network of Oral Health Access. Let's hear what Steve and Hugh have to say about bridging the gap between medical and dental integration. So I am here with Dr. Steve Geierman and Dr. Hugh Silk, and they have joined me today to talk about medical dental integration. And really the thought behind this is that oral health and other primary care systems of delivery tend to operate in parallel. And really our goal is for oral health to become more integrated into the primary care system. So I would like to start off by having both of you talk a little bit about your personal experience uh, in participating and really bridging this gap. So both of you are clinicians um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how you have personally approached bridging the gap of medical and dental integration um, or integrating oral health into primary care more effectively. So Steve, I'm gonna go ahead and, and give this question to you from a dental experience, um, being a dentist. How have you participated in bridging this gap? Well, unlike many of my colleagues who work in private practice, and it's very much a silo because dental is something I do with my fingers, oral health is the bigger picture, I have only practiced in interdisciplinary settings. Indian Health Service for six years, and then federally qualified health centers. So the dental clinic was part of a whole. The medical clinic was right down the hallway. Behavioral health was on the other side, and we had all the enabling services there. So I would do all of my clinical stuff, but when I had a spare moment, I was down talking to the pregnant women, talking to the diabetics, talking to the nursing staff about 
hey, when I'm not here, do you ask your patients about how are they cleaning those kids' teeth? And what diet are you eating? You know, very common questions. But so I would say my experience is very practical and rewarding. So it sounds like sort of what you're describing is co-located care. So you have all of these specialties all in the same area and you're able to go across the hall, you know, um, talk in terms of how you should treat a patient, get referrals, do that warm handoff in a co-located setting. Correct. And I'm not going to say that it's always perfect. I have many colleagues who work in, in health centers and it's like they have a ball and chain around their leg. They are just there. And if somebody from another department shows up, great. That's not how I operate. I'm a health professional. So Hugh, what about you? What's your personal experience in working in these kinds of integrated settings? Well, I appreciate Steve's family approach being a family physician. If we're talking on a personal level, I've, I've never been co-located uh, per se. So I've had to really work on virtual handoffs. Um, we've done a variety of things uh, from every time we see an adult during their annual physical, just looking in the mouth, asking about uh, dental hygiene, et cetera, and then making a referral. Um, now, if you just hand someone a phone number and hope they get there, that doesn't work all so well. So we've, we've gone out and researched who in the area takes what insurances. Um, we've gone and talked with other dentists and said, tell us more about your office so that we can tell our patients about that before they get there. We can put your website as a favorite. And so in the office, we can show them that uh, actual clinic. And so people start to like know it before they even get there. And then if they need help, we can uh, make the phone calls. For pregnant patients, we make it part of the prenatal package that they are asked, do you have a dentist on, on day one? And you follow up each time to make sure they're getting to the dentist. And then for pediatric patients, we've had uh, pediatric dentists come over, do a lunch and learn so that the providers actually get to meet the dentist and then again, make those referrals. So that, that kind of virtual warm handoff where people are getting to know one another and, and you can give information to the patients, I think works really well. Okay. So it, this reminds me of maybe a distinction that hopefully one of you, both of you would be willing to, to make for those of, for people who might be listening and, and may not understand sort of some of the aspects of this integration. So there's co-located care, which means, um, which Steve just described. So kind of all of these different primary care areas that are not necessarily working on the same patient altogether, but rather have different clinic offices and patients can go around to those different areas and receive care through referrals. There's also coordinated care and then there's integrated care. So Hugh, maybe you can talk about the differences in the other two um, and perhaps jump in with any experience that you have um, with sort of the different aspects. Sure. I, I mean, I, I think of it also in terms of if step one is if we can just get medical providers thinking about oral health and and making a referral, that's going to be the, the very basic level of, 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 of integrated care. But if you are lo co-located and you can do a warm handoff and walk the person down the hallway and physically make that connection, that's going to be that next level. In terms of what Steve's starting to talk about where you're working together um, and it's more integrated care, 
now these referrals are going both ways. But in an ideal world, you also have an electronic health record that talk to talk to one another. Mm-hmm. And and if you want to take that even further, you know, anytime the patient enters the system, if they're in the dental office and they haven't had their flu shot, that could be given like either right there or that person's walked over for their flu shot. That's mm-hmm. when you're starting to get true, integrated, co- complex kind of care. Um, that's not everyone can do that, but certainly FQHCs and, and others that are co-located can do that. I'm sure Steve has some points to add to that. So 37 years ago, I was five years old when I started my first dental uh, <laughs> experience in Rosebud. For those of you who are doing the math. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. It was, we had paper at the time. But the integrated care was the fact that I would open up their chart and I would immediately see your pap smear is out of date. I was the biggest referral of pap smears in the entire program. I want to give one practical example, though, in terms of when you're not co-located. And this, we were at the, my colleagues and I, we were at the American Academy of Pediatrics and we were doing a train the trainer for the uh, oral health chapter advocates. And and I was very practical. Someone like Hugh may see 25 kids in a morning. And sure, he's gonna tell every mom the importance of oral health. But a lot of dentists are scared of little kids. So there aren't a lot of dentists who are willing to see them. I'm working on that in another regard. But my advice to Hugh would be, you need to personally know two dentists. For the five kids out of the 20 who have a draining fistula or some type of abscess infection, that mom, it isn't just a yellow sheet of paper. She can call me or Hugh's staff calls me and it's like, and my front desk person says, she's practical too. You know, Steve has a full schedule and four emergencies waiting, but if you come, he will see you, and I will. But they'll also say, or would you like to be the first person tomorrow morning? Because little kids are better in the morning, and we'll give them pain meds until then. But I, uh, Hugh's credibility is in my hands because he has told this mom Oral health is important. And if I say, I'm sorry, I don't see them until they're three, or Dr. Geierman is booked, he'll see you in six weeks. So what's that patient going to do? I have to have his back. Well, Steve, that's 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 why I was saying that what we really need to do is we need we need to to meet one another. We get to we need to get to know one another. And then, you know. I'm not worried about my credibility to be on the line. And, and and that's, again, one of the things I really encourage primary care folks to do. We've been doing projects um, around the state, for example, that Steve's very aware of, helped design the, the curriculum for it, where we just get, get dentists and, and physicians into the same room. They talk to one another. They talk about how do I make that emergency phone call? What I do now is the, the practices that I refer to, they give me bags with uh toothbrushes, toothpaste, floss, and their card. And so when I'm seeing someone for their annual physical, I can hand them that to tell them, look, as a physician, your mouth is really important. And here's the person I want you to go see. And guess what? I had them over here. They've been in my office. We know each other. And that goes a long way. And, And so 
if we could get every dentist and every physician in this country just to get together for a brief time, what, what, what Steve likes to refer to as dining with the dentist or walk across the street and get to know one another, that will transform care for people. For sure it will. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it sounds like, one, there is a responsibility on the care providers to do a better job reaching out, building relationships, creating infrastructure to coordinate and integrate care. But the reality is, is that there are also a lot of systemic barriers that exist between oral health and other primary care delivery systems that makes this integrated process a challenge at times. So I'd like to read you a little quote from uh, from an article, Bridging the Dental Divide, Overcoming Barriers to Integrating Oral Health and Primary Care, um, because I I thought this was a, a good snippet to maybe get some feedback. Uh, from the both of you. So it says co-location is necessary but insufficient to fully integrate oral and systemic healthcare delivery. Additional progress will will require innovation across three principal areas, interprofessional education and cross-training, financial alignment, and supportive information technology. So I couldn't agree more in my, given I am not the expert, I have limited knowledge, but this sounds great to me. Um, And Hugh, you also mentioned this uh, in one of your earlier responses about needing uh, electronic health records where we can all sort of talk to each other. And right now that is a barrier between integrating oral health into a primary care setting and creating those integrated care delivery strategies. So supportive information technology, what does that look like to you as a physician? Well, I was just at a meeting where I was talking with an organization that is using one of the largest electronic health records in the country. And I, I don't want to you know, get into names and things, but it was very clear to me that they had figured this out, that they had a medical dental integration within that system that they are going to be rolling out in more and more offices. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the problem with each of this is this is the U.S. and we are a country of um, many, many different types of things because that is how we work, right? Uh, this is a country of capitalism, etc. So what works for one may not work for others. But I think if you get some of the largest systems to do that, and so I can look up what happened at that dental visit, and they can look up, is this person on Coumadin? And if they are, you know, this blood thinner, is the, the level okay for me to proceed today? And they don't have to call and, and cancel the appointment and that kind of thing. I think for those of us who aren't going to be on the same system, then we really have to lean on this cloud system where we could go in with a password, take a look, and and, and move forward. and. That should be like tomorrow. I mean, we have the technology to do that. I think we just need some permissions and things to make it work quicker. Right. And and Steve, I know from the dental side, um, it, sometimes this is met with some pushback. You know, we have our own um, dental health records where it, it's getting the shift from paper to electronic health records was like a big move for a lot of dental offices, mm-hmm. not only financially, but also in terms of learning and training in a new system and now telling them, okay, stop doing that and, and maybe do something else. Is there an incremental change that can happen? Does this need to happen all at once? Are we talking about just using the same coding, using the same system, having a health information exchange? We have a lot of options. What do you think works for dentistry? What could be the the key to promoting this within dentistry? 
a common goal. So I'll just tell you a little story. I'm again talking to community health centers and there were 17 of them in the room. And from talking to each of them over the day, I came to realize that every one of them were dissatisfied with their electronic dental record and they were going to ditch it. And they were going to buy each other's so one was ditching it and someone else was buying it as the next best thing for sliced bread. The grass is always greener on the other side. It was. So I put a commercial slide into my presentation and it was a bunch of sheep all looking in one direction. And then there was one black sheep looking in another direction. And I said, let's talk about the black sheep. And basically I said, I told them what they were doing and they just kind of looked sheepishly at each other. No pun intended. And <laughs> And I said, what is it you want? Because two of you tell me we have the perfect medical dental integration. We just enter it twice. And I just looked at them. It's like, excuse me, who has time for that? And it comes down to tell me 10 things that you want this integrated system to do. Put it in the RFP. And when the vendors say we couldn't possibly do that, then don't buy from any of them. Keep what you have. And sooner or later, they'll move forward. I also know, Hugh, who you're talking about. And there is something on the horizon really good. And then the rest of them will get on board. But we have been the victim of the vendors and who do wonderful work for us. But I'm tired of hearing about fancy HL7 interfaces. And I have to stand on one foot like when I was a kid so I could get the TV antenna, you know, so I could see the Ed Sullivan show. You, you don't know who that is. I'm so sorry. But it basically comes down to practicality. And there was one additional piece. If health centers in one state all had common uh, electronic health records, think of the populations we deal with, pregnant women, diabetics, HIV patients. We follow HIPAA. We actually have clean data. We could sell that data to the American Diabetic Association, to the National Institutes of Health. They're always looking for clean data. The money we get from them, we put back into our IT system to support it collectively. It is, it's not brain surgery. So it's just one of the things I repeat, and I'm telling it to you too, so you can repeat it every place you go, but we have to take a stance and sometimes do the hard thing. And the hard thing is not always brain surgery, but you have to take a stance. So there's a model available to us. It's about figuring out how to how to leverage it and how right. not to let the competition get in the way. And I think this brings me to the next piece of those three areas identified in this article, which is financial alignment. So one key area where, you know, medical and dental really don't integrate is when it comes to how dentistry bills versus how physicians and, and other um, medical providers, how they bill. So dentistry is very procedure driven. You do something, you bill X number of dollars for that, goes to the insurance company or goes to the patient and that's what you pay for. So it's not really chronic treatment of a disease. You're not getting a diagnosis. It really comes down to procedure driven um, and that relates to the EHR. So I'm gonna turf this one I think to Hugh first because you're not in a procedure driven industry. 
Um, how do you think, what are our best opportunities to get dentists on board to shifting toward, um, toward how medical has done this now for so long? How do we shift, how do we help dentistry to move past this? Well, whenever I sit with a group of dentists and we start to talk about how great the medical world is, they say, wait a second, you guys are complaining a lot. I'm not sure you've got it right either. So <laughs> let's let's be honest. I think that's the most important thing. We can't just say, hey, go out there and do this. And it's it's so easy. I, I l- Let me tell you where medicine is going and then we can go there together. Um, because we actually are procedure-driven in medicine in a way. So if I see... Um, a senior who's 85 years old on 12 different medications and has eight problems today, and I get my 15 minutes to see her, I'm going to get paid less than if a 12-year-old came in with a wart and I froze that wart for 30 seconds and sent them on their way. That tells you that our system's broken, that I can get paid for a procedure more than caring for that elderly person. So we have our own problems. And I think this is why so many of us who believe in value-based care want to see that be the future, want to see the sort of accountable care organization model that when someone comes in, it doesn't matter if I'm freezing a ward or if I'm dealing with all those medications and all the complexity, I'm going to get paid for the outcome. I'm going to get paid for them to not end up in the emergency room, not end up in the hospital, but more than just not end up somewhere to be well. And so then I'll have a health coach and then I'll have a care coordinator. And, and so Trying to convince dentistry to give up what they're doing, I, I'm not surprised. I mean, who who wants to like jump into the abyss? But if we could show models, and that these are existing already, where this kind of value-based care, accountable care organization works, and at the end of the day, you're happier because you're not ch- chasing these procedures one after another. You're thinking about a patient being well. I think people will get on board and then the matter of working together will be so easy because I'll be working with the emergency room, the cardiologist, the dentist, the podiatrist. I mean, on and on that list goes because we're all working for wellness. Um, the devil's in the details. I get that. Um, but I, I, I think that can work. Sure. So, Steve, how mm-hmm. how do you think dentistry is going to how can we go together? Right. So exactly what you described. How can we get on board to, to toward this progress together of this ultimate goal with value based care? I do think if we keep our eyes on oral health rather than dental, and one of the ways of doing that, whether you're in private practice or in a public setting, is to be able to utilize community health workers in case management, care coordination, patient navigation. And there's something to be said. Uh, The ADA actually has a policy that says every dentist should be a leader within the community. Well, currently, dentists only get paid and can meet their, you know, overhead if they're sitting at the chair doing something. So having a community dental health coordinator, a promotora, a community health worker, somebody who addresses they're from the community, going back to the community, they're trusted. They can give good news. They can give bad news. They can give you a kick in the pants if you need it because they trust you. And they don't just look at a silo. Well, I'm already seeing you as the eyes, ears, hands, and feet during the the two months or three months in between HUSOC visits. I actually stop by and visit you every two weeks just to make sure you're doing well. And whether you're a pregnant woman, a young mom with 
three babies, an adolescent who have their own issues, people with chronic diseases and grandmas, to be able to help them understand that there is an oral health relevance to all of these things. It's not extra. So not to be tangential, but think about every state. We always strive for adult dental Medicaid benefits. We have to have them for kids because it's the law. EPSDT, Early Periodic Screening, Diagnosis and Treatment. And, but then it's wide across the board. Some states include pregnant women, but as soon as they have the kid, you're off. Others, you can have benefits for two weeks. The more sane people, maybe for six months or 12 months, because there's continuity there. But I think of it in terms of a Medicaid budget, and let's just say it's $100. For, that's for everything, what Hugh and I both do together. Only 2 to $4, four at the most, normally two, is dedicated for dental. And most of that goes to kids. So a sliver of a sliver is what's left for adult dental benefits. But how often do you turn on the evening news and it's like Massachusetts, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, pick, take your pick, had to slash adult dental Medicaid benefits to, to balance their budget. Horse hockey. There's a much better word there, but my sainted grandmother's not with me. <laughs> I would reiterate one thing you said and add one thing. Political will is absolutely important. This is not mm -hmm. Republican versus Democrat. This is we need to respect that oral health is part of overall health. So this 2% is crazy. Um, and, and that's that's part of it. And it has to be non sort of cuttable. The other part is getting out of, I, I wouldn't use the word silo in this case. I would say getting getting out of familiarity and comfort, our comfort level. So when I, when I did correctional health, I oversaw a number of physician assistants and nurse practitioners. Um, I saw some patients, but mostly oversaw their care. Then I, we also did telemedicine because, you know, the inmates, it was hard for them to go into the big city. So the dermatologist, the, the orthopedic surgeon, et cetera, et cetera. This was all new to me, but it didn't take me long to adapt to say, wow, look how many patients I'm now caring for, like, you know, through these others that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So, you know, if we can get the dentist to realize that when you have a public health dental hygienist out in the community, when you have a dental therapist out in the community, when you are engaging, say, with a specialist by teledentistry and then being able to provide services you couldn't provide before, you're going to provide so much more care. We just, I mean, I know the same feels comfortable, but doesn't like new also seem exciting? And, and, and it, it at the end of the day, when you look at these patients and you're getting this many more patients, I mean, you have to wrap your head around that. There, there are, what, 110 to 180 million people that don't see a dentist every given year. They're out in the community. We can get to them. We know where they are. They're at school. They're in the nursing home. They're at WIC. They're at Head Start. We know where they are and we could get people to them. And the dentist could be back in their office overseeing that care. And yes, at first you're a little nervous, but if you've got a good team, you're, you're not nervous any longer. You know they're an extension of your skills, and, and it works. Children have benefits now for largely because of the demise of Diamante Driver, the young man in Maryland. And if you ask today's Congress, who's Diamante Driver? Cummings would know, but that's about it.
Q's right. We know where the underserved are and a large portion of them are 65 and older. If we bring grandmas into advocacy, grandmas are different than kids. Little kids are cute. Grandmas are cute too, but they vote. And grandmas vote for their grandkids, their kids and themselves. What an ally. And if dentistry doesn't come around to address the issues and be part of the whole, grandmas will vote in such a way that Congress and the feds will move us forward and we'll have no choice. So we need to be at the table rather than on the menu. So there are, there are lots of systems here at play. So we're talking about, we're talking about fully funding what's already available to us. So there is an infrastructure in place and it's about allocating enough funds to ensure that we're seeing optimal oral health across the lifespan. And really how I view it um, is oral health, yes. So as you were talking about, Steve, it's, it's a small slice that's allocated to oral health, but it's a small slice that's allocated to primary care in general. I mean, when you're talking about uh, the most recent numbers I saw were from the primary care consortium, and they talked about out of all healthcare spending, only five to seven percent is spent on primary care in general. So, of that five to seven percent, then when you're talking about the small sliver that's allocated to oral health, this is a multi-level systemic issue. And I'm so glad that you talked about Steve how how we really need to ensure that we're bringing our advocacy efforts there. Um, but it's more than just advocacy, because um, both of you have talked about too ensuring that we are utilizing workforce appropriately. Mm -hmm. So um, at our most recent colloquium in January of this year, we talked about value-based care and interprofessional practice. And I remember one of our uh, conversations really came down to um, a debate, um, a discussion, a debate, however you wanna sort of frame that narrative, about whether or not we are we have enough workforce. Do we invite more? Like, are we recruiting more into the oral health workforce, or are we just? Do we just need to get better at utilizing the current workforce and leveraging um, leveraging each piece to their highest scope? Uh, really leveraging capacity outside of oral health into other care providers. So I'd like to hear some feedback from both of you as to whether or not you feel like this workforce, how, how do we tackle workforce? So say we, we solve the problem and it's funded, now how do we treat the people? Um, Hugh, what are your thoughts? Well, I was just at a, a conference looking at uh, geriatric health and geriatric oral health. And we looked at the fact that I think there are around 7,000 geriatricians and to treat all the geriatric patients in the next 20 years, you would need 37,000. That's not going to happen. So I, I think the same is true with oral health. If you're going to if you're going to chase this with more and more providers, you'll get what we already have in the U.S., which is a very expensive system with not great outcomes. I think if we go upstream and we chase this with a public health approach, and we think about the role of diet, we think about the role of hygiene. I mean, mm -hmm. people are people are spending you know, 364 days in their house and, and, and you know, one day coming to see us, that's, that, that's just obvious, isn't it? And so you've got to work that into school systems. You've got to work that. I mean, in Massachusetts, we have a rule. If you go to nursery school and you're there for more than four hours, you have to, you know, brush your teeth. You know, that kind of legislation, which some people think is draconian, but those of us in public health think it's beneficial, um, mm. that, that can be very helpful. When, when you think of it, you know, we always talk about expanding the workforce. So I would think of it as, you know, expanding who's in the workforce. 
if at the Center for Integration of Primary Care and Oral Health, we've been, you know, sort of studying what is the role of primary care providers right now? How much are they being trained to engage in oral health? And the numbers are increasing, but we, you know, we still have even physician assistants who teach this in 96% of schools now, only 50% of, of program directors are happy with their level of competence when they graduate. So if we could get every primary care provider to engage their population around, are you brushing? Are you going to the dentist? Do you have fluoride, et cetera? That alone would just bend the curve on prevention and we'd have less folks ending up in the dental office. And then, you know, we could go on and on with all the players in this, but I got to tell you, they're not, they're not physicians and they're not dentists. They have an important role. They're, they're the hub in the middle of those spokes, mm -hmm. but there are so many other players we've got to invest time, money, and energy into. Sure. Steve, what do you think in terms of the oral health uh, workforce? Is it an expansion? Is it leveraging our current workforce to the best of its ability? Is it integration with other types of primary care? All of the above, none of them, what do you think? It's all of the above. So I just wanna add a few more disturbing uh, variants because there are 40 years of practicing dentists out there and some of them fully get it. Some of them are very comfortable. So there's a whole group of people that want to focus fully on bringing the new graduates into a different spot. And the Robert Wood Johnson Pipeline to Progress uh, initiative 15, 20 years ago now, where they move dental students out into the community doing extramural and type activities, actually learning in real life settings, not in the dental school. And in many of those situations, they're interdisciplinary settings. And in many schools, nursing, medical, dental will actually do some training together in the first two years. Some more formal, others more informal, but that's important. But when, and I may drink the Kool-Aid, I graduate, I have $400,000 worth of debt. And I go into, a private practice and I have these great ideas and it's like we don't do that here and you know I want this job or I'm in a community health center who are not all on the the mainstream either some of them there used to be regional dental consultants I happen to be one of the last 10 when we went away and they kept giving money to health centers and George Bush's second George Bush his presidential initiative, one of them was a thousand new dental access points. He got those, but it was kids right out of school. And it's like, it's hard enough to run a private practice. They don't teach us to do that in school. You're now basically running a practice in an interdisciplinary setting, fighting Hugh Silk for dollars in some situations. It sounds like you hit on the, the last sort of key element, which was interprofessional education and cross-training and just how mm -hmm. that facilitating from the very beginning a value-based system of, of, of utilizing your primary care professionals in the best way possible. Um, and so I think I was gonna ask about that, but it sounds like asked and answered. Um, and so I wanted to end today, uh, I know, through this conversation, we talked about lots of different areas where we could improve. 
we talked about lots of different opportunities for improvement, lots of different barriers. But I'd like to wrap up today, maybe by asking both of you to share where we're doing it really well. Where are our successes? Where are the pieces, um, both within oral health and other primary care settings, that we are doing this integration really well? So Steve, what do you think? Where is a, just a quick success story, a, a place that we're doing this really well, um, a model? Feel free to name names and programs that are doing a good job. I would say there are programs such as in Missouri, uh, a young dentist named Nate Suter, who is using what Hugh described earlier, uh, the virtual dental home. And he will have public health dental hygienists out in nursing homes taking full x-rays, digital, and full pictures, health history. They send it to Nate at his office. He looks at it. He can make a diagnosis and treatment plan. The assistant can do whatever is possible. And then he can actually then go and finish the work. And I think that's a great model. Paul Glassman has been talking about it across the country. And it's an, it, it leads to an initiative that I'll end with that I think communities should embrace. You walk into most long-term care facilities or nursing homes, and there is a place for Hugh to do his work, but there's a beauty salon chair for me to do mine. If the community, the United Way, the VFW, the Junior League, and the PTA actually did a fundraiser, raised 75,000, whatever it is, to put in a small procedure room that you could do dentistry easily and safely, that the physician, the podiatrist, the other professionals who visit those places could use as well. You have community buy-in. Dentists would be more willing to go because I've kind of hinted dentists are afraid of pregnant women and little kids. They're really afraid of older people with comorbidities. But if you can make them comfortable, they realize, why was I scared? Because I'm also in collaboration with Hugh, the family practice doc that manages that elderly woman's care. And he invites me in as a collaborating health professional. Life is good. Right. So there are models there. So there are models there. Missouri. Right. Yes. Right. So there are models there utilizing technology utilizing effective workforce, and mm -hmm. there are lots of opportunities for us to continue to do this better. So that's the success, is that people are doing it well and ways for us that we could replicate and even and in, even innovate in those areas. And so we're educating. If I'm asking for money from the community, they're not just gonna give it unless I tell them why. So what an opportunity. Right, exactly. Hugh, what about you? Where do you think we are succeeding in this area? What are we doing well? Yeah, let, let me give you a few brief e examples um, in and around Massachusetts. So the Family Health Center of Worcester, which is part of the UMass Medical School Family Practice Residency, their approach as, a, as an FQHC is uh, approach oral health at every visit not at every well visit, at every visit. So the child comes in, they've got a rash, um, you diagnose the rash as eczema, and then you quickly look in the chart, have they had their fluoride varnish or not in the last six months? If not, the medical assistant comes in, varnishes them up, and then takes a quick look, hey, have they seen the, the dentist or not? Let's get them over there. Um, 
that's sort of the Qualys model of use the people in your office. Don't tie up the pediatrician or the family doctor. Use the medical assistant well. And so I love that model. Um, Codman Square uh, Community Health Center, they, um, as part of the Mass League and Shannon Wells' work, they looked at we're doing group visits for our dental patients. We've got 10 people here tonight. We're going to talk about nutrition. We're going to talk about their feet. And then literally the dental hygienist and the dentist visit the group visit. They take people out one by one. They do a quick exam of the mouth. They give some advice and they triage. Does this person need to be seen tomorrow or do they need to be seen two months from now? Great model. Um, a couple of student-initiated models at UMass. One is we have a free clinic for medical care. And one of our students went across the dental hygiene uh, school, said, would you, would you come and start seeing patients that are here? And it's an opt-out model. So a person's there that night because they've got a cough, and then the, de the medical student walks them over to the dental side. The dental hygienist students and faculty see them. They may varnish them. They may get them in for a cleaning in their office that's free the next day, or they may get them um, set up with Medicaid Mass Health and get them into full-spectrum dental care because right there they can sign them up. The last one I'll say is another student is working with Head Start. Head Start said, what happened to the pediatricians? They're not prescribing fluoride the way they used to anymore. So she took it on that she was going to contact all the pediatricians in town that take Head Start kids. She was going to go in and educate the um, children in the morning uh, and the parents in the morning. And she was going to make sure that these kids are getting into dental care. So she's sort of acting as a, a health coach, uh, a care coordinator as a medical student who's going into orthopedics, but she just thinks this is an important concept. So th there's like four totally different models of sort of getting that care integrated. And, and I, I really love each one of them. I actually like that you pointed out that students are driving a lot of that care too. And it really speaks to what Steve was saying earlier, where, you know, you really have to allow the new innovation to come in. And sometimes it's kind of scary and change is mm -hmm. difficult, but it's there and it's available. And we just have to kind of let it happen because, you know, students are coming in with these wonderful ideas. I'm, I'm so glad you were able to share that. So thank you both so much for being here with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I know I learned a lot. So thank you both for educating me. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today on Anecdotal Evidence. Big thanks to Hugh and Steve to contributing to this week's episode of Anecdotal Evidence, the podcast holding space for public health professionals to share their stories. I hope you learned more about the opportunities to continue integrating oral health with other primary care delivery. You might want to swing by our website, www.aidph.org, to view presentation materials and videos from this year's colloquium on interprofessional practice and value-based care. Presentations reiterated many themes heard here today with the overarching draw towards systems that are patient-centered and focused on keeping people healthy. Thanks again for tuning in to Anecdotal Evidence. I'm your host, Annalise Cothran, and I'll see you next time.